We are in Genesis, and we're in Genesis chapter 7, and I hope that you're taking opportunity to read through the book of Genesis, all 50 chapters. Um, it's a fairly long story, and uh, it's good that, uh, to understand that it's broken down into smaller stories that we can manage. I mentioned last week that there's two main sections, uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. It focuses on four primary events, right? Creation, the fall, the flood, and tower building. So if you're interested in tower building, stay tuned. We're going to look at that next week. But those four primary events uh, form the foundation of Genesis 1 through 11. And then the storyline switches and moves from events to people. And then we look at four primary people, four primary characters, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. So that's one way to kind of understand how Genesis is divided, how you can navigate this book as you read it. The only problem with that is it feels like now we're dealing with two different texts. And some people would even say, these are two different texts. And so there's another clue to reading Genesis I want to give you this morning uh, to encourage you to continue to read. And the clue has to do with a weird little Hebrew word, which you pronounce, which I pronounce, toledot. Toledot. It's not a candy that you unwrap and take. That's Toblerone. That's something totally different. This is Toledot. And uh, Toledot has a variety of meanings. Sometimes it's translated as generations or sometimes we translate it in the New Living and other translations as this is the account of. And so it's kind of the offspring or what flows from this point of origin. And there's 10 of these Toledot sections in Genesis. Five you'll find in chapters 1 through 11, and conveniently, five you'll find in chapters 12 through 50. And when you start to pay attention to the Toledotes, then you realize the structure and the flow through Genesis. And maybe that will just help you a little bit as we go through it. So we have the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. And it's kind of a weird thing because it's not as if the heavens and the earth give birth to something, or maybe they do. The Toledot of the heavens and the earth, the offspring of the heavens and the earth, is how we start. And then we looked at the Toledot of Adam, and today we're looking at the generations or the offspring or the story of Noah. And that's where we're at today. The story of Noah and the flood. I think it was one of my favorite Sunday school stories. I'm sure you, you heard it in Sunday school. I'm sure that maybe some of you even painted it on your nursery room walls at home when you're expecting children. We have it on our wall in our preschool room, I think, the nursery room as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I love the story because I loved animals, always loved animals. And the thought of having all these animals together where you could pet them in one day would be fantastic. I didn't think of dealing with all the animal excrement that would maybe come, and that might be a whole other story on the ark. Uh, but I just had this kind of romantic notion, I think, in Sunday school and growing up of Noah and the story of the flood. However, I am now an adult, and I have to say that this is one of my least favorite stories in the Bible as an adult, and this is just full disclosure. This is me being honest with you this morning. This is one of my least favorite stories because it causes me to do a whole lot of mental, moral, and theological gymnastics 
in order to maintain a favorable view of God. That's just being honest. As we read through the story, and we're going to do that in a minute, I hope you feel the weight of it. I hope you feel the awfulness of this story. Yes, we, we're going to focus on the rescue part. We're going to focus on what God is doing. But we need to be honest and sit with something that happens here that is difficult and tough and weighty and causes us concern. If it doesn't cause you concern today, you are a monster. No, I won't, say, I won't, I won't point to anyone. <laughs> But as we read through this, it's heavy, it's burdensome, and, and I think we're meant to, to feel the weight of it. So let's read together. We're not going to read the entire, entire story, but we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 7, and I'm going to read the uh, full 24 verses of this chapter. Ready? Yes. Okay, good. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with all your family, for among all peoples of the earth... I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal. I have approved for eating and for sacrifice. And take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights. I did that one time in uh, the lower mainland, and I got a little concerned. <laughs> Until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice, and those who were not, that were not, along with all the birds and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two, they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on the earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, and small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah 
and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Wow, that's a sobering passage. And um, I'm not sure why I decided to preach on it, but here we are. And I think it's important for us to wrestle with these honestly, and I hope that you have opportunity. Maybe join a small group, and you can discuss things like this as we work through it together. It's sad how quickly we move from the beauty and the excitement of creation. Do you remember reading that story here? It was a very different tone in the room, wasn't it? We were excited. We were saying, it is good. It is good. It is good. And how quickly we've come to this narrative when all living things now perish. Even the creatures that scurry along the ground. Probably one of the saddest verses and statements in Scripture. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. How did we get here? How did we get so quickly to this point? Well, if we back up to the, follow, or the previous chapter in Genesis chapter 6, we realize that sin introduced by Adam and Eve and then sin through Cain just began to multiply and to the point where sin had affected and impacted every kind of relationship in the earth. And so we read this in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord observed the extent of human weakness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That's how far sin had spread. It's a warning to us. Sin is at the door, crouching at the door. We need to deal with stuff that happens in our hearts early before it spreads and takes over. And that's part of the picture that we're seeing here, that sin had absolutely taken over. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. It's a bit of a theological conundrum to think about God having regret. And that's part of the, the difficulties we have in this passage. But however you answer that question of how can God possibly have regret, it is very much being expressed here. His sorrow, how it has broken his heart, how he regrets having made humanity because of what they have done to the earth. And so the flood is a kind of, a kind of reset button, uh, just to put it in crass terms. Now, there's lots we could say about this, and there's lots we need to wrestle with, and so I don't have time to go through it all today, but if this passage causes you to concern and you want to have a coffee this week or the next couple of weeks, let me know, and we can work through it together. But here's the question I have for myself and maybe for you today. How do we manage to hold this story in tension with our understanding of the gospel? How do we hold this story in tension with our understanding of the gospel? I think that's, that's part of the dilemma that I have. Because through Jesus, through the gospel, I have a particular picture of God in my mind and in my heart. And when I read the story of the flood, it doesn't seem to match. What do I do with this? How do I hold it in tension? And I use that word very specifically, intention, because I'm not sure that I've ever managed to resolve it. And so I live within this tension 
of not fully knowing how to answer this question of God of the flood compared to the God we see in Jesus Christ. But one of the things that helps me is to understand that this flood narrative is part of a larger narrative. We're meant to read this chapters 1 through 11 kind of as a whole. Because we're meant to get the arc of sin. We're meant to get the whole arc of a human nature and how our tendency is, because of our selfishness, to actually destroy the good things that God has given to us. That seems to be our natural tendency, is to disrupt relationships and disrupt even creation. And so we see that. And so as we understand the story as part of the larger narrative, we see the escalation of violence and sin moving humanity away from the goodness of creation. And that was God's deep concern. That's what broke his heart. All of this good, it's good, it's good. And humanity says, not good enough for me. I'm going to chart my own path. And that's the path that actually ends up leading to destruction. And it breaks God's heart. And so the flood is a decreation story. It plunges the earth back into the chaos of the waters. Remember how it starts out? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and now God plunges the earth back into those waters in the hope that something new and good will come out of it again. I think sometimes we see that in our lives even. Sometimes when we face circumstances that are very difficult, or even face death, sometimes those events also bring about a new opportunity and new life, and that is the hope. And so the flood is, is coming to the earth, but not with the hope of finality, but with the hope of new life. And so we see some of that here too. But it is a story of judgment, and, and we can't just let that go. I mean, and it's God's right to judge the earth. We've been singing about that this morning, that God is a holy God. And part of that understanding of God's holiness is that he is other than us. That when we imagine God, we have to be careful that we just don't project our own morality and power and ability and create God in our image, right? And that God is holy and just and has the right to both give life and take it again. And as uncomfortable as that might make us, that's what's revealed to us in Scripture. We don't have that right, but we understand that God does. So it is a story of judgment. But I want to be really clear about something this morning, that God's judgment does not come from a place of vengeance. And that's very clear in the passage that we are reading today. God's judgment comes from a place of grief and sorrow. This hurts me. This breaks my heart. I don't know if you ever heard that from your parents growing up. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you're like, no, <laughs> this hurts me more. Uh, but then as a father, I realized that when I had to discipline my children, and I didn't have to do it often, they were perfect, as that's what they tell me. Um, but whenever we have to discipline our children, it, it comes usually, if we're a good parent, we do it, but it comes from a place of sorrow. That's not the way that we want to interact with and engage with our children, even if it's necessary for their ultimate good and their ultimate benefit. That's the only way I can begin to kind of imagine and relate to what's happening a little bit in the story. God's judgment and his correction, as drastic as it seems, still comes from a place of grief and sorrow and ultimately still comes from a place of love. But here's what's helping me the most as I wrestle with the flood narrative. 
I asked the question, how does Jesus deal with this? <laughs> and how do the New Testament writers take this flood narrative? And what did they do with it in order to understand what we are meant to do with it? Jesus and the New Testament writers, they referred to Noah for sure as a historical person, and they definitely referred to the flood as a historical event. But their focus is how that narrative instructs us to live in the present world. So whatever rabbit trails you go down in exploring the flood narrative, whether it's theological or moral or practical or geographical, whatever it is, and there's lots of ways you can explore this, make sure it always comes back to how does this help me live as a disciple of Jesus in this present world? Because that's what Jesus does with the flood narrative, and that's what the New Testament writers do with this narrative as well. And so that's what I want to uh, invite us to ponder this morning. Three simple ways that the story of the flood is used to promote faithful living among the followers of Jesus. Okay? The first way, the story is used as an example for us to follow. In Hebrews chapter 11, this great, uh, the hall of faith, you know, all these faithful servants of the past, Noah is mentioned here. And it says this, It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. The takeaway here, Noah obeyed God even when he didn't understand and when it wasn't popular to do so. Noah, for a long time, was building this boat. That's how the story goes, right? And as he was building it, he seemed to come under condemnation from others. I mean, he must have looked like a crazy man building this boat. And yet he was obedient to God, even when he didn't fully understand, and even when it wasn't popular. Now, I don't want this to develop a kind of martyr complex as Christians. Oh, it's us against the world. The big bad world is around us, and we have to take our stand against the, the flood of the world. I think the church has sometimes gotten it wrong in the culture wars, and sometimes we use passages like this to bolster up our opposition to everything that's in the culture. I'm not sure it's meant to do that. Sometimes we actually have to oppose popular opinion right inside the church, Sometimes we actually have to stand up against popular opinion that we find even amongst our own people, our own clan, our own kind. So Noah is a great example to us of someone who stood against the flow. He went against the crowd. And that's what Hebrews takes up and says, remember to be obedient to God even when it's not popular. Now, when we talk obedience, I know every time I mention that word, I feel in my own heart kind of this burden. Oh, God's got a bunch of rules and we just got to obey the rules. But always, always remember that obedience in the New Testament equals love. <laughs> Jesus says that if you love me, you will keep my commands. And what is my greatest command? To love one another. And so perhaps part of the example of Noah to us today is that we are called to love one another even when the world around us calls for hate. And I think that's a relevant message to us today. Even when we see the reaction of violence and hate and all sorts of scandal in the world around us, we are still called to love. And that's one way we go against the tide. 
Okay, so that's one way a New Testament writer uh, appropriates the, the story of Noah for our benefit. Noah is an example. Here's a second way. The story of the flood is an encouragement to us. Now, in reading it, we might not have felt too encouraged. <laughs> it's pretty difficult. But there is encouragement being used. This story is being used for encouragement, especially for those who are facing trials. This is what Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says this, Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world with a vast flood. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials. So the way that Peter grabs this flood story and applies it is he says, I know that you're facing all kinds of trials. I know that you're facing all kinds of troubles, but trust God to bring justice to your situation. Trust God to bring about justice in his time. God will provide a rescue for you, even though you're facing a trial right now. And so Peter uses the flood story as a means of encouragement. It's kind of a, a classic lamentation all throughout the Bible. And the lamentation goes like this. Why do the wicked prosper? You see it in the Psalms. You see it in several different ways. Why do the wicked prosper? Do you ever feel that in your life? <laughs> the people that just ignore the rules, the people that, that break the law, the people that do all sorts of things, why do they seem to prosper? And I'm trying to do the right thing on my taxes this year, and I know it's going to hurt me, right? <laughs> I've got people that I know that, that always seem to just work the system, and maybe they're not entirely breaking the rules, but they're certainly pushing the bounds, and they get away with it, and they prosper. And I was doing 34 in a 30 zone and get pulled over and get given a, a speeding ticket. Now, that's just me just giving a little bit of a grievance. But, <clears throat> but why do the wicked prosper when we're trying to do so good? And that's part of the, the burden that we see in society, right? And see all around us. And so Peter would say to us, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly people in their time of trial and from their trials. Hold on. Trust God to bring justice to your situation. And that's part of what is happening with this flood story. So it's an example, it's an encouragement, but also the flood story is used as a warning. And this is how Jesus uses the story of Noah and the flood. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, when the son of man returns, now that's specific language. Sometimes Jesus uses son of man to say me, myself and I, you know, he's talking about himself. But sometimes the language also draws up the idea of coming judgment, the son of man coming. And so Jesus says, when the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. Therefore, and here's the warning, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus is saying they had warning, but they weren't paying attention. They had opportunity, but they didn't take it. And when the flood kind of came, they were caught off guard. Don't be like them. Take warning. Prepare now. Pay attention and be ready. You ready for what? We believe that Jesus is coming back again. We don't talk about it a whole lot sometimes, but we still believe that. But we also know that we are all mortal. 
that we will face death at some times. And part of this instruction and warning is to be ready, pay attention, take the opportunity in front of us right now that God is giving to us. Don't be like them. How do we get ready? Well, repent and believe the gospel. That's one way that we start to get ready. But another way that we get ready is that we learn to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. We don't hold on to the stuff of earth too tightly. That if we can learn to live with open hands, then we are ready, right? I love in 2 Peter chapter 3 that as part of this warning, there is still an encouragement. And it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That verse is also connected to the story of the flood. Why did it take so long to get this boat ready? Because God was being patient with people. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? Because God is patient with us. Even in judgment, God is patient. And that's what we see here. So this is the way the New Testament writers, and this is the way that Jesus takes the flood story and makes it usable and workable for our life of faith. Stand against the tide. Hold on because justice will come. And make sure you are ready, watching and ready for Jesus to come back. Well, one final thing that I'm going to mention, and then I'll let you have at it for all your flood narratives that you need to explore and questions that we might have. But here's the one other thing. There's a curious moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus talks about a future baptism that he must accomplish. In Luke chapter 12, he says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What was Jesus talking about? Because by this point, Jesus had already been baptized earlier in the story. But as the story unfolds, it becomes really clear. Jesus' death on the cross was his submersion under the dark waters of chaos. And by this flood story, but this flood story has a different ending, right? So this baptism that Jesus was talking about here was the baptism of his death to be submerged under the flood waters again. In the flood account in Genesis, the wicked died, but the righteous one was spared. But with Jesus... The wicked are spared, and it's the righteous one, Jesus, who sinks beneath the waters of death. Unlike Noah, Jesus did not escape the flood of death alive. The waters of death rose around and drowned him. Noah survived by the flood by taking shelter in the ark. But in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus becomes the shelter for us, not just for his own family, but for all of creation. And so there is still a flood story going on, even in the story of the cross. So here's my final thought. Ultimately, the flood drives me to Jesus. It drives me to Jesus to remind me of the mercy and the kindness of God and to find shelter in his forgiveness and in his grace. I encourage all of us to do the same, to run to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that there are stories preserved for us in your word that cause us some difficulty, and we wrestle with them. We're thankful that we can be honest with you in this. 
But we're so thankful today that you sent Jesus. You sent Jesus to clarify your heart, who you are, your desires for us and for this world. And you call us to follow after him. And so our prayer is that, that we would be ready, that we would be ready by following hard after your son, Jesus, that we'd be ready by seeking for justice and peace in the world, that we'd be ready by opening up our lives and not clinging to the stuff of this earth, and that we'd do all this for your glory and for your honor, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.